How many of y'all are, are football fans out there? Okay. Awesome. Nathan and I are Dallas Cowboys football fans, and the Cowboys won a game today that they should have never won. Yeah, let's go. But they were playing the Atlanta Falcons, so let's face it, it was a foregone conclusion. If you guys remember the Atlanta Falcons, they were up 27-3 against the New England Patriots going into halftime of a Super Bowl and still managed to lose that game. Well, they lost a game today against the Cowboys that there's no way they should have lost. Um, but we're, Nathan and I are happy. But you guys know the, the trophy in football is named for a, a head coach, and that trophy is called the what trophy? Anybody? Lombardi. The Lombardi trophy, right? Named for a famous football coach whose name was Vince Lombardi. And Vince Lombardi was a coach of the Green Bay Packers in the 1960s. And in 1961... Vince Lombardi brought the, the Packers into training camp. Now remember, these are professional football players. These are people who are being paid to play this game. And Vince Lombardi starts out training camp in 1961 with the Green Bay Packers by holding up a football. And he begins by telling a locker room full of professional football players, he says this, gentlemen, this is a football. And the point that he was making is, I don't care how advanced you think you are. I don't think how far you feel like you have matriculated in the, the, the course of your career as a professional football player. I don't, think, I don't care if you think that, that you're the greatest thing that's ever stepped onto a football, player, a football field. If you don't know what a football is, if you forget the fundamentals of the game, if you forget the basics of this game, you're going to be worthless on the field. And so what's somewhat of a, a humorous scene for us to think about these professional football players who have played the game for decades, and now all of a sudden, here's a coach going, hey, here's a football. We look at that and we say, that, man, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Why would he ever do that? Really, what he's doing there is somewhat similar to what the Apostle Paul has been doing in the book of Galatians for chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Paul's been going back to the basics of the gospel. Because much like a football player is going to be useless to his team if he doesn't understand what a football is, if he forgets the fundamentals of the game, if he thinks that he's so good that he doesn't have to remember things like how to tackle, things like when do I run out onto the field, things like how many yards until a first down. If, if he just kind of kicks it into cruise control and all of a sudden he forgets the fundamentals of the game, he's not going to be very useful for very long. Well, likewise, church students, if, if we forget the fundamentals of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we forget the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we feel like, okay, it's, it's time to move on to meatier, weightier things in Christianity. Let, let's move on to the, the heavy stuff. Let's talk about theology. Let's read bigger books. Let's major on this subject and that subject. Or, or maybe it's not that we want to go deeper. Maybe it's that, well, let's, let's just focus on the things that make us comfortable. Let's focus on love. Let's focus on grace. Let's focus on mercy. Let's focus on compassion. Let's all say, why can't we all just get along together? If, if that's where we're at, y'all, then, then we're going to be useless to the Lord when it comes to our faith and our relationship with him. The church in Galatia, which we've been studying for the past, I don't know, probably two months now at this point in time, they were being attacked. They were being attacked by this group of false teachers that was trying to get them to fall prey to this idea that if they believed in Jesus, that was a good start, but then they also needed to do X, Y, and Z in order to be acceptable to God. They also needed to obey the law. They needed to be circumcised according to the Jewish customs. They needed to do these Old Testament things that were, the Judaizers thought, still important to their standing before God. And, and this was a threat to the gospel. 
In fact, this was something Paul initially said in chapter one is a different gospel. And then he said, wait a minute, there's actually no such thing as a different gospel. This is no gospel at all. See, what the Judaizers were preaching and the gospel that they were preaching was a gospel that was going to lead the people that were going to follow that straight to the pits of hell. And what Paul wanted the, the Galatians to remember is the basic foundation of the gospel so that they wouldn't be led astray. Vince Lombardi stood up and said, gentlemen, this is a football. The apostle Paul has been writing to the church in Galatia saying, gentlemen, ladies, this is the gospel. Grab your Bibles, open them up to Galatians chapter three, actually, which I know last time we had a sermon, which was two weeks ago after our, we had our Bob Ross night last week, but two weeks ago, uh, Evan came and, and preached on Galatians chapter three, at the end of it, at least. But I want us to go back to Galatians chapter 3 because Galatians chapter 3, the the last paragraph there sets up where we're going to be for at least the first part of chapter 4. Chapter 3, verse 23, Paul writes this. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. Now listen where he goes in chapter four with that word heirs. He says, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is is no different in function than a slave. Though he owns everything, this child, he he doesn't have the rights and the privileges of the the owner, the master, the, the, the father of the household. And so in that regard, he's similar to this slave. He has the same legal standing in the house as a slave does. He can't make decisions for the family. He's on par as far as his power goes with the household servants and slaves. But, verse 2, he is under guardians, tutors, and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, then we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God also sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's stop there. Just by way of housekeeping here, lest you're being tripped up by this If you are here of the fairer sex and you're thinking to yourself, well, how chauvinistic of Paul that he didn't say sons and daughters. A couple things we need to bear in mind. Uh, Number one, if you want to say sons and daughters in your mind as we're reading this, that's fine. Lightning is not going to come down from heaven and strike you dead where you sit. (laughs) Number two, we have to consider Paul's argument. Paul's talking about an heir. And during this time in this culture, the heir was the son in the household. And you can stand up and say, that's not fair. Okay, that's fine. I get that. I'm just saying at this time, that was the cultural norm. And so as Paul is writing, he's writing about a concept of the heir of a household. And if he had said, hey, the daughters were the heir, the people that he was originally writing to would have scratched their heads and looked at Paul and thought to themselves, what are you talking about? Daughters don't inherit things. 
So as we read this, as you hear him say, you are sons, understand that he's, he's talking about your, your, your privileged position in relation to the father. He's not trying to say that, that men are better than women. He's not trying to say that, that long live the patriarchy or any of that other mumbo jumbo nonsense of, of the political sphere out there. So divorce yourself from your 21st century mind, right? And let's, let's get back into the first century world here and understand what Paul was driving at, that this term of the son and the heir, those went hand in hand with each other. And that's really his whole point in his argument that he's making. But he starts out here and he says at the end of chapter three, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And then he says this, you are heirs according to the promise. What promise? Genesis 12, three, right? When God promised Abraham, Abraham, hey, in one of your descendants, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so the apostle Paul is saying at the end of Galatians chapter three, hey, if you are in faith in Christ, if you are not trusting the law, but you are trusting Christ for salvation, now you are uh, an, an heir of the promise. Now you are in line to receive the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, including redemption, salvation, deliverance, eternity with God. But then his argument develops. He says, because I want you to think about when you were children. And he says, look, there's a time where a child is maybe going to become the heir, but while he is a child, nobody's going to trust him with anything, right? And as such, as he's a child or in, in, in that house, like I was saying earlier, he really has no authority in that house, even above a, a household servant or slave. They both kind of hold the same standing and status in the house. The, the decisions are made by the homeowner. The decisions are made by the, the head of the household. The decisions are made by the, the father. And Paul says, actually, you know what a child needs? A child needs a guardian. A child needs a tutor, which in chapter three, he said was the law. In what way was the law a tutor? The law was a tutor to reveal to us our what? Rhymes with bin, starts with an S. Sin, right? The law reveals our sin and shows us that we need salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So when we were yet children, before we were in Christ, before we were saved, we needed a tutor to bring us up and teach us how to think and teach us what was right. And Paul was arguing in chapter three that that was the law. And he's picking that thought up in chapter four. He's saying, look, a, a child needs a guardian. A child needs somebody to, uh, to manage him and to, to bring him up. It says until the, what? The date set by his father. And Paul said, look, when we were enslaved to the law, that was us. In the same way we were, he says in verse three, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Those elementary principles of the world are those things of, of the law, the, the, the feasts that were kept, the, the rite of circumcision, the food laws, the dietary restrictions, all those things in, in Old Testament Israel law that, that God had a purpose for to set them up apart as the people of God that now were fulfilled in Christ. Now we no longer need those things. And Paul's saying we were once enslaved to them, but now we no longer need to be enslaved to them. Why? Because verses four and five, because the fullness of time has come. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So what he means there is born of a woman, just meaning he was fully human. This was not an appearance. This was, he was actually, he took on full humanity to his full deity. Born of a woman, born under the law to what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, what's the next word there? Adoption. Adoption as sons. 
adoption as, as those who are rightful heirs in the family. That's what he means there when he says back in verse two, he says, look, a child needs a guardian until that time set by his father. Well, in verse four and five, Paul says, look, that time has come. You are now no longer a, a child. You are now no longer a, a slave. You are now, the, the time has come in the fullness of time is that phrase that he uses there. That fullness of time, I, I think there's two aspects to that. Number one, it's pointing to the, the fact of, of God's sovereign plan for salvation. That the fullness of time wasn't in the Old Testament. The fullness of time wasn't with Abraham, wasn't with Joshua, wasn't with Moses, wasn't with David, wasn't with Isaiah, wasn't with Jeremiah, wasn't with Daniel, wasn't with any of these major Old Testament figures, right? The, the fullness of time wasn't there. In fact, the Bible picks up that theme, doesn't it? When Peter says, hey, look, the, the Old Testament prophets, they, they were dying to know what it was they were talking about as they were writing the words of God, as they were writing inspired scripture, they, Peter says they were longing to know who it was that was going to fulfill these things they were writing about. I mean, think about Isaiah, writing Isaiah 53, and the, the, the crushing for our iniquities, bearing our guilt, right? And, and think about how much Isaiah would have loved to have known what that was talking about and who that was and how that was going to work itself out. And yet Peter says they weren't serving themselves, they were serving you and I, Right? Or Hebrews chapter 11, which lists all these amazing men and women of the faith. And, and it just says in there over and over again that refrain by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And then at the end of the chapter, it says, yet, yet they did not receive what was promised. You and I have something better. Why? Because we have Christ. We've seen the fullness of time come is what the writer of Hebrews is saying there. So that's the first side. The second side is the fullness of time has to do with, with that legal standing of the child becoming an heir. Something has changed now in the relationship between the father and the son because the father has now declared that we are no longer children, but now we have the rights of the, the heir of the household, that we can share in the inheritance that is coming to us. And so the fullness of time has come. And what happened in the fullness of time? Well, God sent who? Jesus. God sent Jesus. Why is that significant? Because without Jesus, you and I never qualify as heirs. You and I never qualify as sons and daughters. We can't work our way into that. If you think about actual adoption, right? The child has, really has no power over whether or not he or she will be adopted. The child who longs to be adopted can only wait for a family to come along and adopt that child. It doesn't matter how good that child is. It doesn't matter how obedient that child is. It doesn't matter what that child looks like, the type of grades that child gets. It doesn't matter the background, the past, the history of that child. None of that has any bearing on whether or not that child will be adopted or not. That all comes down to whether or not a family will come along, look at that child, put their affection, their love on that child and say, I want you to come and be my son or be my daughter. Well, guys, that's how it is with our relationship with God the Father as well. It required him putting his affection on us and going through what it took to bring us into his family. And what it took to bring us into his family was Jesus Christ. Not your righteousness, not your track record, 
Not your godliness, not your lack of godliness, not your obedience, not your intelligence, not your looks, not your smarts, not your books, not whether or not you went to church your whole life, whether or not this is the first time you've been to church. In the eyes of God, when it comes to your standing before him, none of that matters. What matters is Christ and what you've done with Jesus. Which comes down to that word, faith. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, full humanity, so that he could represent us fully. Born under the law, he was held accountable to the law, and he perfectly lived a life of full obedience to the law, so that when he would die on the cross, he could give us that obedience in exchange for our sinfulness. And he did this to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, and because you are sons and daughters. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit that takes up residence within us is the ultimate familial marker for you and I to say that we belong to God. We are part of God's family, right? Like when a child is adopted and brought into a family, they take on the last name of the family that adopts them, and that signifies them, that marks them, that characterizes them, that says they belong to this family, They have full rights of this family. Well, God has given us his spirit, the Holy Spirit that takes up residence within us when we repent from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The Savior, the Spirit comes to to dwell within us. And that's the sign, that's the familial sign that we have that allows us to draw near to the Father and cry out that, that intimate family name for God, Abba, Father. Think about your your parents. The only person, my guess is, unless you've got a weird friend that comes over and calls your mom and dad, mom and dad, which if you do get a new friend. The only people that call your parents mom and dad, right, are your siblings. A joke, right? If you've got a friend who calls your parents mom and dad, whatever. That's weird, but that's fine. They can still be your friend. But it's a family thing, right? And that's the title that, that God allows us to call him when he says Abba, Father. Abba was a Greek word that was reserved for children and their dad. Nobody else would call a man Abba. Only a child could do that. And what gives us that right? It's the spirit that dwells in us. Romans 8 verse 9 says this. Romans 8 verse 9 Paul says, you, however, you're not in the flesh anymore, but you're in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. And notice this statement. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This isn't really on topic, but just as a sidebar, those that want to say, well, the spirit comes later on. There's a second blessing. You're baptized by the spirit after salvation. Romans 8, 9 poses a huge problem for them. Because what if I'm saved and then I'm hit by a Mack truck before my baptism in the spirit? Paul just told me I'm not in Christ at that point in time. See, we receive the spirit as soon as we're saved. At the moment of conversion. And that moment of conversion is our moment of adoption. And that relationship with the spirit does this. Paul says later in Romans 8, Romans 8, 14 through 17. He says, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of, here's our word, adoption. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Same word there that appears in Galatians. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit then that we are children of God. Again, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives within us as a mark of our conversion is the sign that we belong to the family of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then here's our word as well, heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We've been adopted into this family. He says in verse 6 there, Because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir, yes, an heir of the promise of Genesis 12, 3, but also an heir of what awaits for us in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he's going to wipe away every tear and there's not going to be any more crying, no more sickness, no more pain, no more disease, no more death, no more heartache, no more sin or any of its effects. Why? Because the former things will have passed away. God says, behold, I'm making all things new. That's the inheritance that waits for us if we are in Christ, if we are adopted as sons and daughters. And again, the only thing that's going to allow you to be adopted into God's family is faith in Jesus. These people that were coming to the Galatians were saying, hey, that's part of it, but then you need to also do X, Y, and Z. Paul's saying that's not it at all. If you want to fall into the trap of saying, I want to earn my way into God's family, good luck. It's impossible. It can't be done. Point number one tonight is this. Keep remembering how much better Jesus is. You say, then what? Fill in the blank. But specifically, than us trying to earn our way to God. Daily, keep on remembering. This is not like a one time and then I'm done kind of deal because that's like Lombardi when he said, hey, gentlemen, this is a football. That's why Paul is having to come back to the Galatians going, gentlemen, ladies, this is the gospel. We have to keep remembering the gospel. We have to keep remembering how good it is that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have to keep remembering that our righteousness is righteousness in Christ, that our righteousness is not righteousness based on how your week went, how your day went, how your month went. When we start to drift that way, that, that's when we fall into the, the trap of trusting ourselves instead of trusting Christ, and Jesus is far better than that. Some of you here have moved out of mom and dad's house. Hopefully one day all of you will move out of mom and dad's house. I've moved out of mom and dad's house, by the way, just to let you know. It's a good thing. I know I'm married. I've got five kids. It's about time. No, but it would be weird for me. This is really weird to even think about. It'd be weird for me to go like to my mom's house and like just sneak in one night, go up to the guest room, sleep there, wake up in the morning and start begging my mom to make me pancakes, right? That'd be super strange. She would probably 5150 me. She would take me to the hospital. She would want to know what's going on. She would run a psyche eval on me. Why is that weird? Because I'm a grown man, right? Because that's not that job. That's not that role anymore. And while for some of you, it might be nice that maybe your mom still makes you breakfast in the morning, does your laundry. There's going to come a day when you move out and, and you step into full independence and full adulthood. And you'll think to yourself, man, as nice as it would be to have somebody make me pancakes, I'm super glad my mom doesn't live with me anymore. And that's kind of what it's like when we are tempted to go back to the law after we've been saved. It's like we want to go back to living as children is what Paul's saying. 
We want to go back to living under guardians when we've been freed from that and we have something that's so much better now in Christ. Something that's so much better than self-righteousness, so much better than the lies of the enemy that the, the enemy will tell us that says, you know what? You can't go to church this week because you did this. You can't read your Bible because you said that. You can't pray because you just had this thought. See, that's where we are falling into the trap of trusting in self-righteousness. That somehow God is waiting for us to clean ourselves up so that he will accept us. And Paul's saying that's like thinking like a child. That's not the gospel. Again, y'all, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who, what? Knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness that lasts for five minutes. The righteousness that lasts for a week. The righteousness that lasts until you screw up badly enough. Do your Bible say any of those things in that verse? No. It says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of what? God. God is a God of infinite righteousness. His righteousness is inexhaustible. And that righteousness has been placed into your account. See how much better Jesus is than us trusting in our own abilities to do it. I do want to provide a, a caveat though. Does that mean that we take everything about the law, everything about obedience, everything about holiness and throw it out and say, well, it doesn't matter? No, of course not. I still do some of the things that my parents taught me when I was growing up because they are good things and they are right things to do. And I do them because they're, they're beneficial. I don't do them out of obedience to mom and dad anymore. But I do them because they're the, the, the appropriate things to do, the right things to do, right? Well, likewise, when we consider the law, there are things built into the law. There are things about godliness and holiness that are good and are right and are appropriate and are healthy for us to, to do. That are good for us to continue to practice, good for us to continue to pursue. Not out of a, a, an obligation to keep the law for our righteousness, because our relationship to the law has changed, but rather because this is something that I know is the, the right thing to do, so I need to do this. Let me give you a couple of buckets on that. Number one is, is purity. The law talks about that. The Bible talks about that. It talks about obeying God and being men and women of purity. Is purity a good thing? We're going to just go ahead and nod up and down, even though I can't see any of you anymore because these lights are super bright. Yes, it's a good thing, right? Does your purity make you any more or less a child of God if you are in Christ? No. Honesty. Is it good to be honest? Yes. Right? It's a good thing for us to be honest, to strive to be men and women of integrity who people can trust. But y'all, if, if, if you tell a lie, does that all of a sudden remove you from Christ? No. Self-control. Is self-control a good thing? Yes, it is. It's a great thing. But does self-control make you any more righteous in the eyes of God than you already are in Christ? No. 
So you see, there's this, this balance here. I want you to not hear me say the law is bad. Don't, don't worry about the law. Don't worry about godliness. Don't worry about holiness. Don't worry about obedience. That's not the point at all. If you go away thinking that, then, then I've, I've failed you. Rather, I want you to say my standing in Christ as righteous is not about the law. It's not about obedience. It's not about holiness and godliness because I am righteous because of his work, not because of my work. I still want to be holy and godly and righteous. But that's because I love Jesus now. Not because I'm looking to be acceptable by God, to God. So you and I need to step into our identity as God's adopted sons and daughters. We're no longer outside. We're no longer like that child at the orphanage. It's like, I I really hope I get adopted. No, God has set his affection on us in Christ. And he's made us heirs. And that's way better than anything we had before. Paul keeps going in verse eight. Formerly, he says, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Do you sense the gravity in Paul's words there? He's basically looking at the Galatians going, what are you thinking? You remember Galatians 3, the beginning, he says, who's bewitched you? Who's put you under some spell, some curse, because you are out of your mind? And he's coming back to that again. And and it's so bad what was going on there at the church that he's even saying, look, I'm afraid that I may have even come to you and served you and brought you the gospel in vain. Because you guys may not even be Christians. Why? Because you're so kept caught up in self-righteousness. You're wanting to go back and be enslaved by these things like keeping days and feasts and times of the year, thinking that you're righteous because you do that. Paul's like, you're crazy. Look at verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you. I beg you. I plead with you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He says, and he's recalling when he first met the Galatian church. He says, look, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. He was forced to stay in that region because he was sick. And while he was there, because Paul said for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, Paul's like, look, I'm sick here. I'm laid up. You guys are here. Why don't you gather around? I'm going to tell you about Jesus, right? So Paul's saying, look, I preached the gospel to you at first because I was sick. Verse 14, and through my condition, though my condition rather was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me. He says, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. You you received my words as though they were the words of God, as though they were the words of Christ himself. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's intense. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul's going, what what changed? Why Why are you looking at me going, Paul, how dare you not have told us all the things that the Judaizers taught, taught us and tell, tell us now? He said, remember when I first came to you, you received me as though I was one with the words of God. You received me as though I was Jesus himself with, with the words of Christ. And he says, in fact, you were willing to give up everything for me. And he goes, what has, has gone so wrong that now you, you don't want anything to do with me? Verse 17, he's speaking to the Judaizers. He says, they make much of you. They're going to puff you up, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, church. They want to cut you off from me is what Paul is saying. 
that you may make much of them. In other words, he's saying they want you to not have anything to do with me and the gospel because they want you to look at them and be like, wow, those guys are awesome. In order that you may, may make much of them. Verse 18, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, verse 19, for whom I am in, again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Again, Paul's going, my goal is to labor like a woman in childbirth until you come to maturity in Christ. He said, I want you to be like Jesus. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am grieved. I'm perplexed about you. Again, the Judaizers, they were attacking Paul. They were attacking his message. They were undermining his message. They wanted the, the church there to doubt Paul. They wanted the church there to, to think that Paul didn't have their best in mind. They wanted the church there to think that, that Paul had shortchanged them on the gospel. And there were some that were falling for that. And Paul's trying to remind them, look, guys, I love you. My goal and my only goal has ever been to see Christ formed in you. Y'all, students, I want you to think about your leaders that way. Because the men and women who are here, who are your leaders, love you. Point number two tonight is this. Know that you have leaders who love you. Know that you have leaders who love you. Captain Luis, Danny and Evie, Paul, Kenya, Cody, Adam, and Junu. Amanda. Me, guys, we, we love you. You may look at me and say, well, you, Pastor PJ, you're a pastor. This is your job. You're here because you're paid. Fine, whatever. That's not why I'm here with you. I, I, I love you guys. But the, these other men and women that I just listed off, they're getting paid nothing. They're here because they care about you. They're here because they, like Paul, want to see Christ formed in you. They're here because though they all have their own jobs, their own lives that, that, that they have, they, they, they want to be here and they're joyfully here. They're not here begrudgingly. Nobody's got a gun to their head forcing them to be here at all. They're here because they're saying, look, this is important. This matters. You matter to them. And because they want to see Christ formed in you, you know what they're not going to do, students? They're not going to blow smoke. Your leaders are not here to tell you how great you are. Your leaders are not here to fill your mind with pop psychology and psychobabble about your childhood wounds. It's a waste of their time and your time. Your leaders are here to labor to see Christ formed in you. And that's what they do. And so, students, I want to encourage you to believe the best about your leaders. Because I know each and every one of them are willing to pull you aside and have a difficult conversation with you. But they do that because they care about you. Because they want to see Christ formed in you. They're not there to build their reputation in your eyes. They're not there to build my reputation in your eyes. They're there to build Christ's reputation in your eyes. And the world would love nothing more than to distract you from that. Nothing more than to cast dispersion on your leaders. The world would love nothing more than to get you to doubt whether or not Danny really cares about you, men. Or Evie really cares about you. Or whether Kat really is that nice. 
She is, by the way. That's what the enemy wants. Because the enemy will surround you with these statements and concepts and leaders that are going to say, you know what, you're, you're fine how you are. You're a good person. You don't need to change anything about you. You know what, that, that thing that, that's going on in your life, that's not really a big deal. Let's just sweep it under the rug for right now. It's, it's, we'll deal with that later. Oh, don't worry about that sin. That's no, no, no problem. Yeah, Jesus was murdered for that sin, but you know, no big deal. You're a good person. Look how godly you are compared to that other person over there. Your life is way more put together than this person's life. See, the world is willing to fill your life with those voices. And in exchange, you know what the world wants? It wants your devotion, it wants your love, and it wants your worship. Instead, y'all, you have leaders and pastors that are going to tell you what's true. And in exchange, what they want from you is your devotion, your worship, and your love to be towards Jesus. So Paul is writing and he's pouring out his heart to these, these people there in, in Galatia going, hey, look, I've, I've loved you. I want to see Christ formed in you. And I just, as a sidebar in this message here tonight, guys, I want you to understand that your leaders care about you that much too. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. For the last three and a half chapters, Paul's focus has been on battling these Judaizers. And in bringing this argument to a close or to a head, he he uses a, a metaphor with a couple of Old Testament characters. Pick up in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul's getting a little bit sarcastic. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. So Paul's helping us understand what he means. Hey, this is a metaphor. These women are two covenants. One is from Sinai, the law, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. All right, close your Bibles. Amen. Have a good night. It's a confusing portion of, tech, of scripture, isn't it? Let's see if we can break it down a little bit here. First, you've got the, the children of Hagar and Sarah. You guys remember the, the story here, right? You had Abraham. Abraham had Sarah as his wife. Sarah was barren well into old age where it was well past the time that she could ever biologically have a child. So she's like, hey, Abraham, take my maidservant Hagar and have a child through her. And maybe that can be the heir in the family. So Abraham, as a bonehead, goes ahead and decides, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Let's do that rather than trust God. He takes Hagar and Hagar gets pregnant and gives birth to a son. And that son is named... Ishmael, Ishmael, right? Who is a son of the flesh, but also a son of slavery. Why slavery? Because the mom's standing impacted the standing of the, of the child. Hagar was a slave, so her child was born into slavery. On the flip side, though, you have Sarah. And Sarah then later on in life has Isaac. And Isaac was born into freedom as a son of the promise. So you have Ishmael, who's a son of the law. And you have Isaac, who is the son of the promise. Something else about Ishmael is he's born naturally. Nobody would have been shocked that Ishmael was born. Hagar was younger, was of childbearing age. And here's the child. 
And then on the flip side, though, you've got Sarah. Sarah has a, a child, and she's almost 100 years old. She's at a, a, a stage where people would look at her and go, this is insane. There's no way she would have a baby. And boom, here comes Isaac. Isaac is born supernaturally. Isaac is a gift from God. Isaac is a son of the what? The promise. So you've got law and you've got promise here, but it continues here. You've got these two covenants as well that are represented by these two women. Hagar, Paul says, is Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? God came down in Exodus chapter 20 and delivered the, the 10 what? Commandments, the law. So Hagar represents the law. Again, slavery, law. But then with the other side, you've got implied there in the text. It's not stated explicitly, but it's implied. You've got the Abrahamic covenant through Sarah and through Isaac. And that's the, the covenant of promise. That's the covenant of, of promise that, that Paul's been talking about in Galatians. And so again, you've got law versus promise. And then finally, you've got these two Jerusalems. You've got the, the current Jerusalem that's represented again by Hagar. And that's the, the, the Jerusalem that was governed by Rome. That's the Jerusalem with no king on the throne. That's the Jerusalem that would eventually in, in AD 70 be destroyed and ransacked. That's one Jerusalem. Or Paul says the, the flip side, in Sarah, you have the Jerusalem from above, the new Jerusalem, which is the Jerusalem of promise. So Paul is using this metaphor here, which would have been well known to this audience of these two women, Hagar and Sarah, and saying, if you look at everything associated with Hagar, it's not great. If you look at everything associated with Sarah, yeah, sign me up. Paul's going, this is what's at, on the plate before you, guys. Do you want the law and slavery and death or do you want the promise and freedom in life? That's this metaphor. That's this allegory that he lays out there between these two women. And of course, Paul's point is the promise is better. He says in verse 27, for it's written, rejoice, O barren one. The barren one is Sarah, who does not bear and break forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one, Sarah, will be more than those who has a husband or has a man in the original text. And that's Hagar there. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. He's reminding them, guys, you are part of the promise, not the law. But just as at that time he was born, who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Hagar was driven out by Abraham, right? Why? Because Hagar and Sarah, Isaac and Ishmael could not coexist with each other. They were incompatible. Likewise, Paul's argument here is church, you cannot have a desire to be justified by self-righteous adherence to the law and a desire to be justified in Christ. Those two things are incompatible. One has to go. And he's saying the clear choice is to forsake self-righteousness. I don't know about you guys, but have you ever felt like through this series so far, getting to chapter four now, kind of going, okay, Pastor PJ, okay, Paul, I get it. Law, bad, Jesus, good. Did this need four chapters? How many chapters are in the book of Galatians? One, two, three, four, five, six, right? Four of them have been about this subject of the law versus the gospel. You math majors out there. Four-sixths breaks down to what? Two-thirds, right? So 66.6 repeating percent of this book has been about the law and the gospel. Why? 
because of what's at stake. Again, ladies, gentlemen, this is the gospel. Third point tonight, final point tonight is this. Realize what's at stake here is heaven or hell. Realize that what's at stake in Galatians 1 through 4 is heaven or hell. That if we don't get this right, we don't get any of it right. And so Paul has been laboring to say, chapter 1, you know what? Don't go after any other gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but don't be tempted towards another gospel. Chapter 2, don't rebuild the things that were tore down. Don't go back to the law. The law has been abolished. Chapter 3, who has bewitched you? Who has cursed you? Who has put you under a spell? Christ became a curse for us. Why do you want to be uh, trying to obey the law? Those who try to obey the law fall under a curse in chapter three. Chapter four, don't go back to living like a child or living like a slave. You've been made an adopted son or daughter. You're an heir of God, right? I mean, Paul is just hammering this and hammering this and hammering this. And you and I sit back and we're like, okay, Paul, we, we get it. But Paul would say, okay, good. I'm glad you get it right now. Make sure you always get it. Because what's at stake is heaven or hell. If you are not putting your faith in the gospel, if you are putting your faith in the gospel and your own self-righteousness, you've missed it. There's only one source of righteousness for us. It's Jesus' righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And that's ours through faith in him. So if you're here tonight and you have hated the church for every ounce of your existence except for right now in this moment, the good news is God wants you to be his son, his daughter, And you can leave tonight righteous through putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Trusting that he died for you. Trusting that he paid the penalty for your sins. Trusting that you are forgiven because of Jesus. You can leave righteous in Christ tonight. You know what? If you've grown up in the church your whole life, but right now there's something gnawing at you going, hey, you know what? I've trusted in my own righteousness, my own obedience. I've trusted my standing as a good church kid. The good news for you is tonight, God wants you to be his son, his daughter. He wants you to be righteous and you can be righteous with Christ's righteousness. Through putting your faith in Jesus as your savior. See, it's imperative that we get this right because this is salvation at stake. That's why the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, look, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here comes Paul again. He's got the gospel. Here comes that coach again. He's going to hold up the football and tell us what a football is like we don't know. Yeah, he is. Why? Because this is foundational. Because without this, we've got nothing. Without this, nothing else matters. Paul said, I, I, I labor to see Christ formed in you. And y'all, at the end of the day, that's, that's my desire for you as well. It's to see Christ formed in you. To see you love Jesus and become like Jesus. That begins with the gospel. 
and it launches you on a life of growing and learning and conforming and learning to love more of what Jesus loves and hate more of what Jesus hates. All for his glory. All for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. Even as we sang that song earlier tonight, he is the name above all names. Lord, there's a day coming in Philippians chapter 2 as the text goes on to say where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. That's everyone. Every single person that has ever lived from Adam on is going to one day bow the knee to Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Father, I pray that everyone that's here tonight would be sure that they have done that this side of eternity and that they won't do that under the compulsion of the hand of the wrath of, of God poured out upon them, but that they'll do that moved and driven and motivated and drawn by the mercy and the grace of God as he as you, Father, open their eyes to the, the reality of their need for Jesus as their Savior. Lord, make that reality true for anyone tonight who is not in Christ. It's the most important decision to deal with. Especially, Lord, for those that have their faith in the strongholds of self-righteousness, thinking that they're good enough, thinking that they're okay, thinking that they know enough, God. Break them tonight, God, of that. Humble them, God to see that their knowledge, their obedience, their track record, their scripture memory, their Awana awards, their time here at this church, their time at another church. At the the end, none of that is going to matter if they haven't put their time into trusting Jesus as their Savior. Lord, if tonight could be a night for salvation for some, how awesome would that be, God? If not, Lord, for those that are believers here, I pray that we would be encouraged and reminded This is the gospel. We may feel like, well, yeah, of course it is. We get that. We know that. But it's so imperative that we remember the fundamentals. We remember that Jesus is always better than anything else. Because what's at stake really truly is heaven or hell. Be kind to us the rest of this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.